Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and welcome back to another edition of the Food Institute podcast. This week, I'm joined by Food Institute CEO Brian Choi, and we'll be speaking with BMO Harris Bank Managing Director and Market Executive Erica Kuhlman about BMO's 17th Annual Global Farm to Market Conference and the major trends emerging from the event. But first, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor for today's episode, and that's BMO Harris Bank's Food, Consumer, and Agribusiness Group. Whether you're a producer, processor, retailer, or distributor, every company throughout the food continuum needs a financial partner that understands the factors that can impact their business. From emerging consumer trends and industry consolidation to commodity fluctuations and economic cyclicality, BMO's experienced team of specialists understands the issues affecting your company, and they use that knowledge to develop tailored solutions that address your needs and helps you achieve your vision. And to learn more about how they can help, please visit bmoharris.com slash food. And as always, you can take a look in the description of this episode to find a link directly to that website. So first things first, I did want to bring on Food Institute CEO Brian Choi, who will be helping me with the interview today. He was able to attend the conference. So Brian, could you open up by sharing a little bit about the conference itself and what you experienced when you were there? You're right, Chris. I got to attend the conference. And as expected, I came away with a ton of great insights and perspectives from all different segments of the food industry. I want to thank Demo for putting on a great event and for inviting me. All right, perfect. And without further ado, let's bring Erica onto the show. So welcome back to the show, Erica. Uh, for those who may not be familiar, could you give us a little bit more information about yourself and BMO? Um, so Brian and Chris, uh, thank you first for inviting me to this discussion and to talk about BMO's Farm to Market Conference, what we heard and what we learned. I really appreciate the time. Uh, a little bit about myself. Uh, I uh, am Erica Coleman. I head up our food, consumer, and agribusiness group at BMO Harris and have been involved in the food and ag sector uh, my whole career. We work with companies throughout North America and uh, really providing capital advice and services to to assist their growth. Thank you for sharing that. And I also want to give you a congratulations as well for a successful 17th Global Farm to Market Conference being completed. Um, I know we're going to talk about that a lot today, but I'm wondering if you could open up with just giving us, you know, the broad strokes of what happened at the event. If you had to pick one theme that kind of emerged at this year's edition of the conference, what would you say that was? Sure. Um, so it was really uh, an interesting conference and, and a little bit about that. Um You know, as you noted, it was our 17th year for Farm to Market, and I am a little bit biased, but I do believe it's the leading conference in the sector, and it was the first in-person conference that we've had since 2019. So a a few stats, uh, there were 650 attendees, and over 300 debt and equity investors uh, were represented at the conference. We had 280 companies attended, and uh, there were... 65 plus public and private company presentations. In addition to those presentations, we hosted a number of panels, and these panels focused on M&A, alternative forms of equity capital, unlocking value in real estate, private equity investing, sustainability, and and controlled environment ag. So it was really great to see everyone in person, and, and I would say the energy at the conference was really amazing. Um, So some of the themes at the conference, and as you know, there's a lot going on in in food and ag today. Um, Certainly the impact of the war in Ukraine, supply chain challenges, labor, um, the changing consumer dynamics, and of course the continued impact of, of COVID on supply and demand. 
But overall, I, I think the main topic of, of conversation really centered on the impact of, of inflation, uh, which drove many conversations and which we will continue to see the, the, higher, the, the impact of higher pricing in food and commodities. Uh, some of the folks there, you know, had a view that this could last uh, well uh, over 36 months, but I think the general consensus that it's really a, a minimum impact of two years. And, and I would agree with that. Yeah. And it's probably no surprise to anybody listening in, you know, inflation is the hot topic around the food industry, just the economy in general. Right. Uh, but one of the major themes we kind of heard at the conference was that past investments were paying off for the food industry and kind of helping them hedge some of these uh, headwinds that are coming with inflation. So I have a two part question for you. I'm wondering if you agree. And if so, you know, how is that playing out with companies that you're speaking with in the food industry? Sure. Absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, companies have made a lot of investments in their facilities and in their um, processing lines. So whether that's, you know, new equipment, which to, to eliminate uh, labor, um, certainly that's been paying off uh, as well as in technology to, uh, to drive efficiencies. Um, we see the impact of, of higher labor costs um, throughout uh, you know, all of the, the companies we, we work with. And uh, it's not just higher wages that companies are dealing with. It's really attracting and, and retaining talent as well. It's a real challenge for the uh, industry. And when you think about food companies, uh, they are labor intensive. Uh, think about harvesting facilities in the protein sector. And uh, just to man shifts at these plants is, is challenging despite uh, higher wages. So we see companies getting creative to retain employees, working with local municipalities and, and private industry uh, to provide housing and childcare for their uh, employees is, is just one example. And I think we're going to continue to see this issue of, of retention and, and attracting labor as, as we move forward. Great. Thanks, Erica. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask in light of today's uh, inflation report, you know, with inflation being at a 40-year high, especially food inflation, when you look at the grocery part, you know, closing in on 12%, you mentioned the higher rate of borrowing. Wondering how the funding environment has changed the the, the volume of, of bonds and, and, and loans in the market, given the higher interest rates. What's your view there? And, um, you know, are companies still investing and borrowing at these higher rates for future growth? Are you, or are you seeing a little bit of a slowdown? So we see the demand for capital accelerating in, in this sector. Uh, it's really been incredible. Uh, I've, as I said, I've spent uh, a fair amount in, in this sector and we really haven't seen the demand and the flow as, as we are seeing today. That isn't what, what I would call event driven. So, you know, it's not being driven by because there's a drought and, and we, you know, price of corn has gone, gone up and we know next year, you know, there's, it will likely, um, uh, you know, the, the, the prices will likely go down. I mean, this is a sustained uh, demand for, for capital. 
And it's really quite interesting because it's not just financing working capital. So because of higher costs, uh, what we have seen companies do is, is really to carry more inventory um, to, you know, address issues in the supply chain. And so that they are not short on product in order to, uh, you know, to, to service their, their customers. So we see a pretty significant investment in, in inventories just to carry. Uh, and, you know, we also have seen companies that have put their, uh, their customers on allocation because they don't have the product. So demand for, for capital is big. Uh, we also see companies investing in warehousing in spite of uh, higher material costs. And, and as you noted, Brian, investing in equipment and technology just to reduce labor costs. So it's, it's a pretty exciting time in, in the food and ag sector. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit and maybe talk about some of the changes we've seen between the 16th edition of the conference last year compared to this year's. And one of the things that really surprised me was a declining focus on plant-based. And I think we've seen this across some other uh, publications, reports we've done as well. But it was kind of interesting considering how hot that you know sector was in 2020 and 2021. So I'm wondering if you have any insight into why that was. Sure. You know, I... Um... I think that plant-based alternatives, whether that's in food or beverage, uh, took a backseat at, at this year's conference simply because there are so many other uh, influences on the in the food and ag market in, in 2022. Uh, when we look at and, and talk to our, our protein processors, uh, everybody needs to still have a, a plant-based alternative in their product lineup. Uh, I think it's important to note the market for, for plant-based, at least probably protein is still pretty small, um, but it is, is, is growing for sure. Um, you know, consumer trends are, are positive to these alternatives in food and, and in beverage. And I think what will be interesting this year will be to see how these, um, these food products perform as they're typically at a higher price point and, Perhaps we'll see a shift as consumers move away um, and make different choices uh, because of higher food prices. Yeah. And another one of the things we saw, I think, too, would be something of a, a less focus on controlled environment agriculture. And for those listening in, that would be vertical and indoor farms, even traditional greenhouse operations, too, I guess, could be included in that. So I'm wondering if you had any kind of insight on why we're seeing that sector's prominence seem to have faded a little bit. I don't want to say it's, you know, dropping down to the bottom, but it does seem that the focus is shifting away from that kind of agriculture a little bit. Do you have any insight there? Well, you know, with CEA, it's, it's really quite interesting. I mean, it is, uh, you know, it's, it's a fact. Consumers want fresh and locally produced produce. Um, CEA is still experimenting with different technologies. Um, but in my mind, the most important factor to the success of a vertical farming operation or uh, greenhouse is, is still the ability to drive revenues and build a market. Um, you know, I think earlier this year, it was in January, we saw that Walmart invested in a vertical farming company, Plenty Unlimited. And I would venture to say that Walmart was probably the first large U.S. retailer to significantly invest in, in CEA as a strategy. This technology takes a lot of capital to build scale. 
And I think that in today's market and investing environment, investors are just cautious uh, to, about this particular sector. But it certainly is is here to stay. And there, uh, we continue to see a lot of requests for capital uh, around this, around CEA. Erica, would you characterize the investor appetite, both from a private equity perspective, but also from a VC perspective, that they are, given the risk riskiness of plant-based and vertical farming, have they pivoted a little bit into some of the more tried and true uh, food and beverage verticals uh, for investments? Uh, I, yeah, I, I would say that's I would say that's true, and I and I think um, you know we're at a, a point where there are so many kind of CEA uh, uh, companies coming to market. And so I think it's at that point where, you know, some of these technologies will, will, uh, will perform better. Um, and I think that uh, it's, it's also, uh, you know, what, what is the market? I mean, having that, that revenue, I mean, having a retailer kind of line up with you is, is really pretty powerful. And so I think with a, a number of these technologies or these companies, they'll, uh, you know, have their value proposition and um, it's, but they don't necessarily have the, the revenues and they're really pretty high cost operations. So you need, you need to be able to show and build that scale very quickly. So Erica, I'd like to shift gears one more time here. Uh, one of the things we also noticed at the conference was that ESG has much more teeth now. And I would say this isn't exactly new. I know the last time that you were on the podcast, we were talking about building an ESG business case. So it's not coming out of left field or anywhere there, but it did seem that one of the ba- you know major themes there was that it did have more teeth. And like I said, they've been growing for the past few years, but I'm just wondering with European banks and the SEC investigating ESG reporting more, what is your advice to companies that are looking to engage in these principles? Right. And I, you know, it's, uh, it's, that was a big topic. And certainly with meetings that, that we had with our clients at the conference, uh, it was one of the first topics after inflation and supply chain and commodity costs uh, that companies were really interested in talking about. Um, the, the, I think the real challenge or conundrum is that there are not any ESG policies set in stone. And companies are just grappling with how to report, what to report, how do I measure? So it's, 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 I mean, I don't want to call it the wild west, but it certainly is, you know, just a lot more questions than answers. So, uh, you know, what we're advising companies and, and it's been great. And we talked about it at, at the, uh, ESG podcast, but you know what we've developed is a whole team of of bankers and experts in order to help our clients navigate navigate ESG and and its uh, implications. So, uh, you know, we're seeing banks requiring reporting as part of loan documentation, and uh, that's really being driven by uh, European banks. Um, but you you know, I think you're going to continue to see that this is important to investors. 
as well as, uh, you know, important to, to consumers. Um, you know, what I think the other component, you know, when we think about ESG, we really talk about sustainability and we, we really focus on the E environment and ESG. Companies are going to have to deal with the other letters of ESG as well. So social and governance. And I think those will be uh, challenging for them because it, it really requires a company to take a hard look at, at their business, at their, at their culture. And, um, you know, how is that being responsive to what investors and, and consumers demand? I agree with you, Erica, that, you know, it seems like it's the wild, wild west uh, when it comes to ESG reporting. You know, we've seen companies like Mondelez, especially the, the Fortune 500, a lot of them just, you know, issue an annual report and the, the report on certain aspects of ESG. Um, and so, you know, in light of the different bodies that tackle this issue, like the World Economic Forum, um, you know, they have 21 ver- criteria of ESG reporting, which seems daunting for any company. So what would you say um, to companies that, that want to engage with ESG reporting? What's the first step and where should they turn to as a basic guide, you know, guideline on ESG reporting? Sure. Um, so I don't know that there is any basic guideline out there. Uh, certainly, and, and you, you know, I mean, at BMO, we're really focused. We've seen this as, as a trend that, um, uh, and, and a demand from our clients. So, so we started this whole journey, um, you know, a few years ago to develop that kind of expertise and, and to develop that expertise in, in-house. Um, but there, you know, I think it is reaching out to and identifying a, an expert or a consultant that can assist in developing, you know, what are the metrics that we're going to track and what are the, uh, you know, what is, what's important for us to, to then report. And, you know, it's not just public companies that are doing this. We have several of our privately held companies uh, that issue a sustainability a sustainability report, and and they are tra- tracking these different metrics. Uh, it's as we as we talked. I mean, it's much easier on the you know to measure waste or to measure uh, you know your reduction in 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 gas gases, and so that's a little bit easier to measure. But I think these other components are, you know, may even be more important to, uh, to uh, investors and consumers. Yeah, and speaking about those consumers, I think a lot are aspirational. They want to have a product that aligns with those ESG principles. But, you know, to Brian's point, you know, we took a look at a 40-year high in inflation this morning. So I think that reality kind of hits up against a consumer as well. So I'm wondering, Erica, in your viewpoint, do you think consumers are really going to be able to spend up and kind of buy products that align with those ESG principles? Or do you think they're going to retreat back into some products that may not align completely with that due to inflationary pressure? I don't think that consumers are moving away from higher priced brands because of ESG costs. Um, I think that, you know, certainly given the, the inflation, the inflationary environment that we're in today, that consumers are trading down simply by making uh, different choices uh 
where their where their spending dollars are going, and and we are starting to see that as well. Maybe a a turn and and more demand for store brands and private label. All right, Erica, thank you so much for sharing those perspectives on the uh, 17th Global Farm to Market Conference. I'm just wondering, you know, at the end of this podcast, is there anything else you'd like to share? Sure. And and again, thank you for uh, for having me. Um, really appreciate it. Certainly a topic, a, a, a topic that, that is bubbling up, and maybe it's more than bubbling up, uh, is really the, the food versus fuel argument and the impact of uh, renewable fuels in, in commodity markets. We're, it is, um, you know, as, as renewable fuels continue to gain traction, and companies invest in infrastructure, uh, both animal fat and, and plant-based oils will be impacted from a demand and pricing standpoint. And this will uh, translate directly into higher costs, higher costs for consumers and, and, uh, and, and for companies. Many believe we're in the midst or have started uh, another super commodity cycle as we uh, as 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 we balance kind of demand for renewable fuels versus demand for lower price uh, foods. So I, I think overall, you know, I would say we're we're cautiously optimistic uh, in in food and, and commodities. Uh, but what I can certainly tell you is is that it is really an exciting time to be in, in the food and, and ag sector. And it's uh, really getting increased uh, visibility uh, by consumers. And certainly we're reading more about it in the press. Overall, I, I felt it was really a great conference. It was wonderful to be with everyone uh, together, the energy, uh, was you really felt it in the room? Lots of great discussions, and uh, you know, I think we're really looking forward to uh, farm to market next year. Thank you so much for your time and so much for the answers today, Erica. One last question for you: If anybody in our audience wants to learn a little bit more about the farm to market conference, where can they go? Sure, we have a whole uh, website that's dedicated to uh, insights from the conference. And that would be found at bmoharris.com slash food. And that'll bring us to the end of this episode of the Food Institute Podcast. And once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor for today's episode, and that's BMO Harris Bank. We'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell signing off. Mm-hmm.